This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Amir Freiman, author of Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the nature of the spiritual path, living in transcendence in contrast to experiencing transcendence in peak moments, and yearning for the mystical. Amir was born in a kibbutz and grew up in a small village in Israel. At the age of 17, he became deeply interested in spiritual existential questions about the nature of consciousness, freedom, self, and the whole. He served in the Israeli army and became a pacifist after participating in the 1982 Lebanon War. He then studied medicine, but at the end of the fifth year of his studies, decided to devote his life to spiritual awakening. He spent two years meditating in a Zen monastery in Japan, and over 20 years doing intense spiritual practice and engaged in philosophical spiritual exploration in the community of Enlightened Next in the USA. In 2009, he left the community and moved back to Israel. Shortly thereafter, he began interviewing prominent spiritual teachers and their students, which led to the publication of Spiritual Transmission, which is his first book. Amir Freiman, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Hello, nice to see you. It's been a while. We, we last saw each other 30 years ago, I think. Yes. So it's more than time to have a conversation. Um, but we didn't get to know each other very well back then. So I'm going to in, ask our usual first question to first-time guests on this show, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood. And if there are any moments during your early years that in looking back, you might say, oh, that was a precursor, a harbinger of what direction my life would take in terms of spiritual practice, spiritual um, exploration, etc. Um, love to hear about them. Okay, interesting question. Um, so if I go back uh, to, uh, to my childhood, I thought about two practices that I used to practice as a child. And uh, one was uh, I loved to go for long hikes and get lost. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think that kind of, uh, um, I don't know, it's kind of training one's own courage or willingness to not know and to be lost. Uh, and, uh, I think that, for me, that's very much part of the spiritual journey and, and kind of looking back, I said, wow, this is interesting and that I, that I you know, kind of practiced, did my, myself this kind of practice as a child. And, uh, and the other thing that is related is um, there's like a um, one kilometer, so two-thirds of a mile walk from my home to my uh, elementary school up we live at the bottom of the village, and the school is at the top of the hill. 
Mm-hmm. And in my childhood, there was just a, um, a dirt road, a one-lane uh, asphalt road uh, leading to the school. And I used to, um, I used to try to see how far I can walk on the way there, on the way back, with my eyes closed. <laughs> and um, that, to me, is also um, now thinking back. Uh, you know, that, that's an interesting practice of training myself to walk with my eyes closed. Is, I, I think is a, an interesting metaphor for the spiritual journey, for spiritual seeking. So that, that these are to me, uh, the other thing is, I remember that as a child, I wanted to be, when people ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was either an astronaut or a diver. And both of these kind of point at, get me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, closing your eyes is also kind of related, it seems to me. And it it shows aspiration in the vertical direction. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's in terms of childhood. I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up in in a pretty idealistic, I would say, environment. My parents were farmers, but Zionists. Um, my father had some tendencies toward communism when he was younger. So there was a social streak and a, and a, and a Zionist streak and, um, and a sense of idealism in my, in, you know, in the environment I grew up in. Uh, but it was more of a national kind of a social idealism. And I think that later on, that kind of, um, that had something to do with my way of thinking of, well, I am an, an idealist, I have to say. <laughs> and um, so I think, I think that's, that's part that is probably related to my childhood uh, upbringing. And then jumping, uh, fast forwarding to high school, I studied, um, I studied biology as my major uh, main um, course in in uh, high school, and the biology teacher had a very strong, or probably the only teacher that had a strong influence on me. So I'm, I'm talking about when I'm 16 or 17, 16 and 17, and this teacher who is a, an um, an Orthodox practicing Jew, and uh, very enthusiastic about Darwinian evolution theory, Hmm. um, speaking with us about the whole issue of knowing versus believing and how do we distinguish between knowing and believing. And he was the first adult that I met that acknowledged that he had some big philosophical or existential questions that remained unresolved and that he is struggling with. And that was uh, that was a new thing for me. <laughs> um, and and he he encouraged me to start um, to read some uh, philosophy of science. And and he specifically recommended a book that had just been translated into Hebrew, which is Thomas Kuhn's um, the, the Structure of Scientific Revolution. Yeah. And it was the first uh, philosophy book that I read, and it took me a few months. <laughs> um, 
but uh, it had a very big uh, effect on me because when I finished it, I realized, you know, Thomas Kuhn talks about the fact that, that the uh, scientific community always works within the parameters of a scientific paradigm. And basically, there's scientific paradigm are some basic assumptions um, that determine what is considered scientific or, or uh, relevant to science and what is outside of the, of the uh, framework. And, and, that's, and the scientists only deal with filling in what's inside the framework. They don't go out. And I, I read this and I realized, wow, he's not talking only about the scientific community. He's also talking about me and the way I see the world and myself and life is all within um, the parameters of some paradigm. I didn't know how to, what to name that paradigm or how to define it, but uh, I thought I actually, I was born into a paradigm. That's why it's uh, transparent to me. And it is completely determining the way I see myself and life and what I'm supposed to do with this life and what are legitimate or desirable goals to have in life, etc. And I and I actually all this was given to me by my parents and teachers and the culture I live in. But I don't know if any of if, if they actually know, if they actually looked into the assumptions behind this paradigm. And so does anybody really know what this is all about? And that really started me uh, on the spiritual search. I didn't know it was called spiritual at the time. I was uh, living in a, in a village in Israel in the 70s, so that wasn't part of the uh, vocabulary at the time. Um, but, um, but I decided, I remember having this conversation with my parents. I must have been 16 or 17, and I, I said to them, I. I want to see if it's possible to perceive reality without the mediation of uh, of this um, of, of conceptual structures. If it's possible to know reality directly with unmediated. And I didn't know. I mean, I said I, I actually don't know if it's possible. Maybe for a human being, that's not a possibility. But it's worth trying. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot to see if it's possible. And that that was the uh, that's what started me. Um, what did you What did your parents make of that uh, affirmation? <laughs> they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that was starting to, that was, uh, they, they started to realize that, they, that there are a lot of things that I probably will be interested in that they will have no access to, which kind of became the reality of, the, of life later on. Um, but, um, and, then, and then I started looking around to see if anybody else knew what I was talking about. And uh, somehow about, Probably a few months later, I ran into this small booklet called 128 Zen Stories, which was just translated into Hebrew. Hmm. So these are 128 Zen koans, short stories, which, and I read them, 
and I remember thinking, um, I, I don't understand anything, but I think these guys are talking, are, are pointing at what I'm looking, what I'm looking for. And so I became very interested in Zen. And then I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and, and became, became interested specifically in Zen Buddhism. And that's what brought me a few years later to a Zen monastery in Japan for a couple of years. Hmm. Where, uh, where was that? In uh, Kyoto or elsewhere? That was about, um, that was Izuhakone is, uh, is about an hour south of Tokyo. It's the, the specific monastery, it wasn't really a monastery, it was more like uh, a country temple, but there was an enlightened teacher or a very enlightened teacher living there. And I, I basically went to spend time with him. Mm-hmm. And that was about five miles from Mount Fuji. Um, beautiful, beautiful area. And uh, I thought I, I arrived at heaven. You know, it was like, I can't believe, for two years that was my experience. I can't believe I'm here. Hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I, I stayed there for a couple of years. I went, six times a year, I went to his teacher's monastery. His teacher was a disciple of uh, the famous Harada Roshi. And his name was also Harada Roshi. Um, and in uh, Bukokuji, which is in a, in a city called Obama, Obamashi. Uh, and I used to go there uh, six times a year for the uh, longer sessions, uh, sessions. They had a one week session at the beginning of each month, you know, six times a year. So that's what I did for two years. And, um, and that's when I started meditating regularly, which is so. Not, how did you find your? I'm I'm curious how you found your way to Japan uh, oh. fr- from Israel. So, a good friend of mine, I would say a Dharma a Dharma brother, went to Japan two years before I did. I started medical school, and he went to Japan, and. Um, and he, uh, he, used, he traveled around and visited different, uh, different monasteries. And he used to send me a postcard from each uh, monastery. That was obviously before, uh, before email time. So, we, <laughs> uh, so I, I, re- I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, um, so we used to correspond by, uh, by postcards. And I remember the postcard he sent me when he arrived at that uh, country temple. And he said, you know, this is a very unusual teacher living here. And he, he's an incredible yogi. He does hours of yoga every day. And, and he does his yoga with uh, um, Western classical music playing in the background. So, wow, that's, that's different. And, uh, and he told me a few things about him. For some reason, that's what I, I remember only that detail. Um, and uh, and I decided that I would I would uh, I actually didn't start with him. I went to another place first. Oh, because he was he he was traveling. He's he had many disciples in uh, Europe, especially in the UK and in Australia. So he used to travel a few months a year. That teacher. 
So when I arrived in Japan, he wasn't at the monastery. So I went to another monastery and I didn't really connect there. And then when he came back to Japan, his name is Hogan-san. I, I went and met him and I, I liked him, you know, it was love at first sight. And, uh, and I decided to stay there and I ended up spending two years there. So what was the uh, cause for you to leave after two years? Um, I felt after two years, I kind of did a self-diagnosis of where, where I stand in my spiritual journey. I went, I went to Japan to get enlightened, which is what I understood knowing reality directly uh, meant. And I felt that even though I had different experiences and I enjoyed my time there tremendously, I wasn't getting any closer to, uh, to my goal. That's kind of my, uh, how, I, I, how I thought about it. And I, I thought um, either I stay here, if I stay here, I want to take the, the monk's vows and become like a wandering monk, basically mm-hmm. forget about everything else and just give my life to this, uh, to being a monk. Or go back to Israel because maybe I'm not ready for this and uh, finish my medical studies and go and come back to Japan after that, you know, and at least I would have uh, a profession and, and I would be kind of more established in the world. And, and I really couldn't make up my mind what I want between these two uh, options. And I went and spoke with my teacher and about it. And, um, and I said, I'm very attracted to, becoming a monk and staying here with you and on the, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it scares me and uh, I don't know if I'm ready for such a commitment. And he said, well, this kind of decision, if you take it, if it comes from your ego, it will be just another brick in the wall. It was the year that uh, Pink Floyd said, uh, what's the name of it, the wall? Yeah. So he was familiar with that, with that, uh, with that song. So he used the phrase that you say, he said it would be just another brick in the wall of your personality. If it doesn't, if this decision doesn't come from the right place. Um, and if you have such big hesitations and so much fear around it, then probably it's not coming from the right place. If you are lucky, he said, if you're fortunate that at some point in life, you will be uh, choicelessly led to make that uh, decision, and then it would be the right thing. So I, I understood. I understood he was right, that I wasn't ready for it yet, and it would, that, it, that I need, something needed to happen. I guess I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't ready for it. He was completely right. And uh, so I went back to Israel, and I continued my medical studies, um, so what happened was I, I did three years of medical studies and then, then I had the, I, I could take a year or two, uh, vacation and then go back. So I took a two year vacation and, uh, and then I went back and continued, did fourth and fifth year. And then I met Andrew Cohen who came to Israel at the end of, uh, or the middle of 87. And, uh, and after meeting him and spending five weeks with him, I decided to, that that was, that was it. And basically what my teacher, my, uh, my Zen teacher told me 
that I would be choicelessly led into making that uh, choice uh, happened when I met Andrew. And so I dropped out of medical school at the end of the fifth year, and I left Israel and uh, went to uh, went to spend time with Andrew in uh, Devon, England. Got it. Well, that's that's uh, that's very interesting, and and I really think um, the um, Zen teacher in Japan strikes me as a as a very uh, um, wise fellow. Um, wow. And he treated you with uh, um, gentleness and and appropriate respect. So that's a nice uh, that's a nice story. I appreciate hearing that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I I think so too. And I think I think he was just uh, he knew that from his own experience that you know if you're not ripe and ready. Um, then it's a lot of struggle leading probably nowhere. And if you're ripe and ready, then, then you kind of, it, ha it, it starts happening for you. And he felt I wasn't, so he was right. Hmm. Hmm. That makes sense. So I know that uh, in your uh, uh, book on spiritual transmission, which um, uh, we may get to today or or in another show. Um, you do describe an interesting moment when you were really trying to work out whether working with Andrew made sense, and it was that you had this moment of, uh, uh, you, I guess we could say, a transcendent instant. That oh, uh, yeah. uh, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and uh, that what that experience was for you and how that, in a sense, sealed the deal for your relationship with Andrew at that time? Well, that happened uh, a few weeks after I met Andrew, and, and he struck me as a very um, genuine, authentic, unpretentious, and trustworthy person right from the beginning. So there was, I took him very seriously, and I felt that he was taking my spiritual yearning very seriously and um, and and so right from the start, right from the first satsang or evening, public evening with him, I decided I was going to spend as much time as I could with him and learn and, and benefit from, from his uh, insight and wisdom, which is what I did. So, so he taught probably five evenings a week and then we used to go on the weekend for um, travel around Israel, and uh, that was also a very interesting experience, and, and we became like good friends. I, I felt like I met this young American. He was only three years older than me. I was 29. He was 32, I think, and, um, and I felt like I not, not only found a very wise and um, free person, but also somebody delightful to be with, and... Uh, and um, and I have to say that I never, I never really looked for a spiritual teacher. And actually, I, I, you know, a few friends, Dharma friends of mine, invited me to kind of meet their teachers or, or watch uh, video clips of their teacher. And I always felt that um, being a disciple of a spiritual master was like... Um, I would say it was a, a recipe for spiritual slavery rather than uh, spiritual freedom. 
I felt like I want, I want to know reality directly for myself. I don't want that to be mediated by my teacher, by any teacher, by anybody else. If it's a real deal, then I don't need anybody else to kind of stand between me and the realization of reality. So what do I need a teacher for? What, what, I couldn't understand that, actually. Um, well, let me just jump. Let me just jump in here. But I want to, I want you to continue. But but I think a lot of people, based on 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 whatever uh, antecedents in their own lives, imagine that they need confirmation from outside themselves that oh, this is real, as opposed to that which is an illusion or something like that. Do you know Do you know what I'm saying? And I think that's where people. I mean, that that's my sense of where people come from. When they're when they're putting that onto other people, do you have a comment about that? Well, I, I think I'd like to talk more about this because I think that's part of the picture of the uh, teacher-student relationship, mm -hmm. which is I think what you're touching on. Let's go into it. I mean, I I sure. I want, let Let's just remark, you know, the whole issue of uh, what I would call after uh, Jung. Um, the golden shadow. So let's just talk about that in a, in a minute. But I want, I, I want to say, you know, kind of about the, what happened between me and Andrew at that point was that out of the blue, without really it making sense to me, I started wondering if I met my teacher, the teacher. Hmm. And, uh, and that question was absurd <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, it didn't make any sense to me. It went completely against my ideas of, of uh, you know, what, what uh, a master-disciple relationship was about. I never looked for a teacher. I never thought I needed a teacher. And suddenly I was asking myself, is Andrew my teacher? Now, what does that mean? I, I couldn't figure it out. And, uh, and, but, I, but that question started kind of became more and more intense. It was a bit like, you know, what they, what they tell in the stories about Zen koans. If you start asking this question, you realize it doesn't make sense, but it starts um, working on you. And, uh, and that's what happened to me. I started the question of, is Andrew my teacher became more and more intense? And it was kind of driving me a bit crazy, I would say. Um, and that happened. So one morning I went, I was studying uh, in a surgical department with a team of students at the time, department of surgery. And, um, and I went, I went to, to the hospital where we, where we had a day at the department and I couldn't go in and join my team. I just felt I need to resolve this question. And uh, it's really, the, you know, my whole life depends on this, on, on realizing or deciding or, or finding out if Andrew was my teacher or not. So I stayed outside the hospital on the lawn. And for probably an hour or two hours, I just went back and forth and walked around and, and couldn't, couldn't, you know, this, this question was driving me crazy, really. And um, at some point I, I thought, well, 
my rational or or um, conscious mind cannot come up with an answer. So I'll try and have a nap, and maybe the answer would come to me when I'm asleep. And uh, <laughs> so I I lay down under a tree there and try to fall asleep, hoping that maybe the answer would come then. And uh, but my mind was too busy, and it was a, a hot summer day, and there were flies and I couldn't fall asleep, so that didn't work. And after probably 10, 15 minutes, I decided, well, that's not, you know, this is not happening. I don't think I will be able to reach an answer today, so I might as well join my team at the hospital. And I got up and started walking, or maybe just as I was getting up, um, I had this instance of, uh, instance of um, I call it unitive consciousness, hmm. where there was just one thing, pure consciousness. I mean, I'm, I'm using words that are kind of, words don't really describe any of it, but I'm, I'm trying to point in the, in the general direction. So. There was just one thing happening, aware of itself, and there were no, nothing other than that one thing. So it was everything, it was nothing, and it or I, it was aware of itself. I can't say I because there was no I in that picture. And I don't know how long it lasted, probably, probably less than a second, but um, I don't know, and I would say I would say it doesn't really matter because time doesn't uh, exist in that uh, in that event. And when I got back to got back when I kind of when when the relative world came back and time and and space and self came back. Two things, I noticed two things. One was that my senses were amplified, so everything looked brighter, I could hear much more, my whole body became much more sensitive. And the other thing is that I knew that Andrew had been my teacher uh, since the beginning of time and would be my teacher till the end of time. And that I had always known that, but that I needed to meet him in person in order to become consciously aware of what I had already known. And um, that was pretty overwhelming. I went to the uh, I went to the telephone booth at the entrance to the to the uh, hospital and called Andrew's called the house where Andrew was staying and he picked up the phone and I said, uh, Andrew, I'm yours. And he kind of smiled. I could hear him smile. And, uh, and he said, well, I knew that since, uh, since we met. Uh, why don't you come over and tell me what happened? And that was kind of the beginning of the uh, teacher-student or master-disciple relationship between us. Hmm. Thank you. <clears throat> That's a, um, um, a powerful story. And I think um, 
it's it's like you were looking for you were looking to have an experience and when you'd given up trying only then could the experience uh, manifest for you well i i i think you're you're uh, you hit the nail on the head as they say uh in the sense that it happened to me a few times since then is that I call them uh, charismatic questions or magnetic questions come up for me. And I, it's a question that I don't even understand why I'm asking it or what, what, what is it about it, such as who am I mm -hmm. or what am I doing here, which kind of defies logic, doesn't make sense. I don't really understand what, you know, what does this question even mean? And, um, but something about it holds me and attracts me like, like a magnet and I can't leave it. And it's, and the question starts working on me. And when something like this happened, and it happened a few times in my life, so, for example, with these questions, such as who am I and what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think Usually, I, I start by trying to answer them with my rational, conceptual, logical mind. And then at some point, I realize that's completely off the point, you know. Even if I could answer them, that the answer wouldn't be what I'm looking for. So I have to drop this way of, uh, I basically have to open myself to, to knowledge or understanding or insight that's not coming from my uh, rational mind. And, uh, and, then, and then something is revealed. And uh, so that's, that's a pattern that I see in my life, a, a charismatic or magnetic question that I submit to or give myself to and that opens a door for, for an insight that is not coming from the rational linear thinking. Mm. Our own teacher's teacher refers to questions like that as centrum of gravity questions. And it's, uh, it's definitely a form. You know, I think of the questions as antenna, you know, they, 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 they don't funk there's there's no answering the question it's simply a way of tuning into a, a something and then as you, I, I love the way you say that that it just works on you yeah it it kind of dissolves from within and uh something something shifts well you know i'm 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 studying over the last few months or half a year now i've been studying uh eugene jandlin's um, philosophy mm -hmm. uh, and, and particularly focusing and thinking at the edge. Mm -hmm. And, and I realized that, um, behind, behind these questions, there is no, there is knowledge. So the quest, but it's, it's knowledge that is not uh, accessible to us or accessible to our normal way of thinking. So where, where these, these questions come from, the answer is already there. But it appears to us as some paradox or, or, or 
a question, illogical question, and it's calling us, it's, it's, it's calling our attention to the place where the question came from, which is, which is knowledge that is already unformed, un, unverbalized, that already exists in us. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. an interesting way of looking at it, I think, is, is to realize that these questions are, are actually uh, coming from the place of where the answers are already are, or where the knowledge already exists. And they're just calling our attention to, in, in that direction. Does that make sense? It does, and, and uh, it reminds me, and your description of your experience as not looking for a teacher, not having that, that ideation that you uh, uh, imagined was motivating you in your life uh, tracks with my own because um, when I met my teacher, I had no, I, number one, I didn't know what a spiritual teacher was. I was, I was a, I was a, he called it, uh, I was a spiritual virgin. <laughs> in other words, I was clueless. Uh, you know, I had no, I had no background except in the, in the Roman Catholic, you know, indoctrination I'd received in parochial school as a kid, okay. which, which actually was preceded by when I was only three or four years old, one or two uh, numinous experiences in a in a Catholic church, but then the actual. How old were you? Like three or four years old. I'm not exactly sure. Wow. I don't recall. Okay. So, but I and I didn't know what was going on. I just knew sure. that there were that there was something way bigger than I could imagine or conceive of. And then when I actually. Um, was trying to enact the religion it was it turned out to be a, a horrible contract you know a contraction over many years <laughs> so i had to give it up eventually <laughs> but 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 that left me in a place where i didn't i didn't have any any uh, aspiration towards seeking out someone who could fix it for me. Mm. Um, I knew I knew I wanted something more, but but I didn't have a sense of. And then I met my teacher and and it was like. Uh, my whole body was. Electrified. Mm. And so so I don't know. Everyone, everyone comes to spiritual practice if they come to it at all or manifest it, if they manifest it at all, in a unique way, it seems to me. That, that's, that's my conclusion over many years. And I'm wondering if, you, if, if that's been your observation. I mean, you've had some, some occasion being with Andrew, your studies now that you um, – mentioned before we started our, our, our discussion about your PhD project, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of experience. I'm wondering if, if, if that tracks with your own observations of other folks as well as yourself. Yeah, I think, I think that the whole issue of uh, motivation and what starts one on the spiritual search or 
how one finds oneself in the spiritual search is is uh, is is completely is very mysterious. And um, I mean, your story reminds me one of the one of the teachers I, I interviewed um, spent when he was I think eighteen or twenty. He went to Japan and spent. 15 or 16 years in monasteries in Japan and in uh, Korea, I think, practicing mm-hmm. uh, Zen. And I asked him, uh, what made you uh, devote so much of your life to uh, the spiritual seeking in such a serious way? And he said, I don't know if you'd believe it, but I had, I had um, a unitive consciousness, or I don't know, I don't remember what name he gave it. Um, when I was three or four years old, so something like what you mentioned, he said, I know, I, know, I know the age because I remember myself sitting on the back porch of my, you know, my house in Texas playing with some uh, Walt Disney doll or something, toy, and suddenly uh, my consciousness dr- just the walls of my consciousness just dropped and my consciousness expanded to the whole universe. And obviously I had no idea what happened. I, I had no way of uh, putting this into any words or any, any concepts. But as I grew up, that remained in my memory as the most um, significant event that happened in my life. And so when I was 18 years old, I decided I wanted to uh, go back to that experience, relive that experience. And that's kind of what started me on the spiritual path. So that to me is like, I, don't, I can't think of anything more mysterious than that, you know, uh, the story you're telling and the story that that teacher told is how can somebody at the age of three or four have this kind of... Uh, you know, unlimited, all-embracing consciousness experience uh, without any preparation in this lifetime, we can say. Um, and, and what does it mean that even when it happens at such a young age, that it remains, you know, as he, in his words, was the most uh, significant event of his whole life. So, and then I think that on the other hand, there are people who have such experiences and have, for whatever reason, um, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know, they don't, they, they, it's so out of the blue and out of context for them that they uh, either think I must have dreamt it, maybe I had you know, a backlash, or not a backlash, what do you call it, when you have a, 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 a trip? Oh, a flashback. A flashback. Yeah. Or, or maybe I had a, a high fever and I, I had this hallucination or something. Or they just forget about it. You know, they just, they, just, um, they just put it aside and then it becomes like more and more of a vague memory and, and eventually they, they, it has nothing to do with their life anymore. Um, so what are the factors and what is it 
in the individual that makes them not only have experiences or longing for the sacred, the sacred or the absolute uh, or the timeless and what makes them commit or decide that that's, that's what they want to uh, aim for or strive for in life. These are very, I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think we've established that we don't know. So. <laughs> right. But, you know, another, another question that, um, because we, there's an interesting tension here between the instantaneous, timeless nature of a, a transcendent experience and it being ramified through time in a life. And, and we touched on this in a sense uh, before uh, uh, we started recording that, um, you know, this question that you're studying now of what, you know, what is the ongoing experience of transcendence as t distinct from these momentary strong peak experiences? Yes. And I, I partly ask that because, you know, you told us the, beginning of the story of this great love affair with uh, and this knowing that your teacher was the teacher in all time you know from from uh you know beginningless time to endless time and yet there came a point in this life where uh you stopped being a student of his yes. and and i don't see that as a contradiction in, okay. in one sense because because in one sense uh, there's an instantaneous truth to the timelessness of that, the reality of that relationship and the way he was functioning for you. And as it ramifies in life, um, the exterior manifestation isn't always the same. Yes. Yes. Well, it's a big, it's, um, you know, there has been a lot of study of, uh, of uh, mystical experiences, you know, obviously starting from uh, William James, and uh, Walter Stace in the 60s. Um, mystical experiences, religious experiences, spiritual experiences, peak experiences. And I have some thoughts about it. I read, I read a lot of the material of the research. Um, I mean, one of the interesting features of such experiences is their ineffability. Undescribability. Uh, so people come back and they say, I have no words, there are no words to describe what I know or what was revealed to me. I mean, the other interesting thing is that people don't say I had an experience. They say something was revealed to me. I knew or I know. So there is a noetic um, quality there, not an experiential quality, uh, based on people's, you know, testimonies of what happened in that, in, in those events. Um, but they say, I, I knew, I realized it was revealed to me, it was, it, it's completely clear to me, something that is of utmost importance and significance, and I don't know how to describe it. I have no words for it. There are no words for it. And then many people go on and write books and 
develop a whole conceptual framework and give uh, retreats and, and talks and, and, and workshops, uh, you know, for the rest of their life about what they said was ineffable and undescribable and beyond <laughs> that. So there's a paradox there. Um, and, and, and what I think, so I think there is an interesting interplay here between um, what happens during the, uh, the event, let's call it enlightenment or unity of consciousness, and what happens when one, so to speak, comes back, returns to the uh, relative world of concepts, language, self, and others. So I, I, I haven't developed the idea fully, but I think, I think that a lot of what we, what gets revealed to us is not when we are in the state of unitive consciousness, but during the transition into that state and coming back from that state. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Well, well I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not, I, I'd mm -hmm. like you to expand on it. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that it, it makes a kind of sense to me in, the, in that purely in that state, uh, the mind wouldn't be functioning in the way that it ordinarily functions. And it's only when you're in a kind of a transition zone between the functioning of the mind and the uh, direct experience of the state that you could potentially form sufficient conceptual structures to even have a memory of what happened. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, which means that during that in that liminal state between normal uh, state of consciousness and unitive consciousness, that's when our, nor our concepts and language and rational thinking comes in contact with something which is beyond it, beyond time and space and self and others. And, and so that's, it's during that time that some transformation occurs in our conceptual thinking and in our, that's, when, that's where things really happen, is not in that state of unitive consciousness or oneness, because not, you know, there's nothing, it's, it's kind of out of, the, out of the world of time and space, so, and, and, and clearly out of the world of language and concepts. So it's only when we come back or when we make the transition that something that is of value or, or that we can work with in the world of time and space and language can occur. And that's where, that's where and when um, our psychological and cultural conditioning is, uh, makes all, is, determines what we will do with what with what happened so if i am if i am a devout christian i would interpret it in one way if i'm a shaman in brazil i would interpret it differently if you know if i'm a viking uh a thousand years ago or or a bushman in uh, in africa i would interpret it in different ways depending on my cultural and psychological conditioning 
and what's available for me in the world of time and space that can kind of relate to that mm-hmm. event of unitive consciousness. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, oh, of course. I, I mean, I think the, there's a couple of things that come up for me with in relationship to that. Um, one is that there's a distinction I see between knowledge in the form of representation, you know, sort of like a signpost pointing to an experience and a foundational change or rearranging of my habit patterns at an emotional level and at a physical level, as well as at a mental level, that certain kinds of experiences or the or repeated contact with a certain line of transcendent energy can have the effect of. And so uh, there's a distinction because someone can have a peak experience, and I see this uh, sometimes in, uh, you, you'll see this in, evangelical churches and things like that. I don't, I don't dispute that people are having a transcendent experience, but without a foundational rearranging of, say, core emotional center habits, then there's a tendency to, for what happens to be, as you say, that it gets put into a well-established container. And if anything, that container has an egoic quality to it and the nature and the having had the experience then becomes a, a brick as it were in the wall mm. whereas the you know the more interesting question to me is you know when questions of surrender come about and questions of um, losing the center of gravity of one's egoic structure as the operating factor in one's life that's a more foundational shift yeah. and I don't, it, it relates in a sense in that I think that peak experiences are great for uh, uh, tastes and things like that, but something else, uh, some other kind of process I think is necessary to be reified in time in a body to more consistently erode the habits of self-orientation that we have such that one can have, can can operate as a manifestation of the truth of that transcendence. Does that make sense? It makes sense, and and uh, that's really what I am very, uh, very much interested in uh, as a topic of research of my PhD research, but also as a topic of my own um, research in my spiritual research, um, and. I don't, you see, we're talking here about the difference between peak experiences and what Abraham Maslow called high spiritual plateau, Mm -hmm. the ongoing consistent state of awakeness or enlightenment or God realization, depending on what tradition you come from. Um, And what is it that makes it possible for an individual to make the shift from having spiritual experiences to uh, to, to living uh, transcendence in a consistent, ongoing way. Um, I mean, the all, I think all, or anyway, all traditions <laughs> that, I, that I read 
make the point that the goal of spiritual search or life or journey is not to have spiritual experiences, but it is to be in an elevated spiritual state. And spiritual experiences, their function is to give the person confidence and um, determination to continue the journey and also some some insight I think I think it is important it gives you maybe a sense of of the potential or what's possible or where where you're going some a, a short glimpse which for me was very significant in terms of giving me reassurance that 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 it's not just a fantasy uh, that it's actually possible um, now on what happened? What kind of transformation makes it possible for the individual to not just have spiritual experiences, not only be committed to spiritual to spiritual search or development, but actually make the shift, uh, which is quite rare, I think. In all traditions, it's considered quite rare. Um, on what level does that shift happen? Is it conceptual? Is it in the body, in the energy, in the effect, on the affective level, on, on all of them? I, that's what I want to explore. I don't know the answer to that. And I think it's a very interesting, you know, very interesting not interesting it's an important question to, to try to understand yeah. what what is that shift well one of the one of one of the things that's coming up for me is as I hear you speak about the, this your interest and your research along two different parallel lines I guess um, is the uh, fourth way notion that that there's not just one shift but there may be stepwise shifts. So in the Gurdjieffian um, work, there's this idea of a person number four being transitioned to a, a state, persons of state five, six, and seven, and those are increasingly uh, rarefied, if you will. So, so that's coming up for me. As, um, as as you were as you were speaking about uh, this, because um, I don't think um, excuse me, the Gurdjieffian work is unique in this in understanding there to be um, a profound shift away from a commitment to the egoic identity and then something beyond which is difficult to describe coherently mm -hmm. but um but it's but um so i'm wondering if that's if that's uh, also a part of the research that you are that you are pursuing for example in your phd research the stepwise uh, like nature different, different, after after a kind of so you're saying different levels of attainment i guess you could say or that. different levels of this kind of I mean, I don't want to go into the whole fourth way thing. You may or may not be familiar with that, but um, but um, I, 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 different levels of attainment is a is a is a good phrase. Well, 
let, I, I'm not familiar with it. So let me ask you, um, I, the way I see it, there are, I kind of divide it into three, uh, the, the whole issue of spiritual development into, I see three streaks, which I call them search for the sacred, which is kind of the initial motivation. Mm -hmm. Different people define it in different ways. Search for the sacred is kind of satisfies my definition. Um, the other is self-transcendence. Mm -hmm. And the third one is self-integration, basically bringing the whole personality and all of one's life in line. Yeah. Okay. Toward that. Yeah. So, um, in what ways, from you say from from the fourth level on? Well, 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 well let me just do a brief a brief summary. So, yeah. so in the Gurdjieffian work, ordinary humanity is usually is either at one, two, or three, and those are usually you know conceived head, of head as centered, heart centered, or body. -centered. Right, right. There's there's people have different strengths uh, or uh, predilections. And then this fourth state is the transition state um, to five, six, and seven. Uh, our teacher um, used to say, Robert Ennis used to say that uh, number five was the point where one can direct one's continuing spiritual evolution without having always to refer to another teacher. In other words, state four is where you need help. State four is metastable in the sense that uh, you are... <laughs> That's a big word. It is. Uh, you're, you're moving between sort of an identified mode of consciousness and a non-identified mode, but typically it requires injection of energy from the outside in the form of the kinds of shocks that a teacher provides or a community provides right. to right. But then, keep, keep that from crystallizing. Right, but then, but then number five is that um, those those external uh, inputs are no longer absolutely required, although they may be useful, continuing inputs like that. And then six and seven are uh, further refinements um, leading to expansion, continuing expansion, or manifesting as continuing expansion of, um, which, of awareness, essentially. Which map into some of the, you know, states, the ecstatic states of the, like, Hindu God-realized uh, beings, the avatars who just are completely uh, uh, absorbed in divinity. So there, there is sort of that notion, but typically the Gurdjieff work is focused around the problems of man number four and what happens to become man number five. And interestingly, even with man number five, there's the notion that uh, you can crystallize a strong, you know, non-identified presence, but it, it can also have flaws in the crystalline structure uh, because you haven't completely worked out certain um, uh, egoic tendencies. So you can have a powerful teacher who actually can be transformative, 
but they also have, uh, but they're so powerful that they, uh, they have blind spots that are uh, really large because they are not identified with themselves in the ordinary way. And typically for teachers like that, they get large shocks that uh, require a recrystallization. So that's a model. I mean, whether it's a true or not, I, it, it's, it's a way of looking at this. But I, I want to ask you, uh, because I'm, 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 I'm interested in learning about this uh, model, and, and uh, it seems relevant to my research. Um, I want to ask you about the role of one's intention or motivation hmm. in these different uh, stages. So would you say that one's intention has a, has a detrimental role, not a, a decisive role in each of these stages and that it changes from one stage to another? That's a really good question and I'm not sure how to answer it. Um, it seems to me that one of, one of the ways to characterize the shift from person one, two, three to four may be um, a, an emergence of intention that exceeds the capacities of the predilections of, of, the, of the earlier states. Um, and then the, what Stuart used, to, the word Stuart used, the crystallization of that as a firm foundation for further de development would characterize the transition from four to five. So, so um, Stuart was, the, we were having a, one of our uh, meditation group meetings the other, the other night and Stuart was, was making the point that, that, um, Robert Ennis, our teacher, used to, um, knew how to demonstrate how important, overwhelmingly, overweeningly important the work or spiritual development or spiritual commitment was. And, and, and so if you map that onto intention, the word you, that you just asked about, I think you can, uh, I think it fits pretty well. So, so, so perhaps we could say then that that person number five has created a clear and and it's it's not like you know one one can't trip or fall or something like that, but one's progress in it in the direction to manifest the intention is no is now established. Right. So, so does, that, does that does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I want to also go at this from a slightly different uh, angle as well. That there's there's two things that um, uh, come up for me, but the one that's kind of resonates the most right now is um, the language that we used in some of our conversations recently on our show uh, is. There's a distinction often between the horizontal realm and the vertical realm. Uh, we were joking about that earlier uh, when you, uh, as a child, wanted to be an astronaut or be a uh, deep sea diver. So, 
uh, intention uh, presupposes kind of like a purpose. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd even go back further. It's like what I, what I find is that where one's attention is drawn is uh, very critical in this because many, you know, most people living an ordinary life in a ordinary uh, sort of identified mode of consciousness have their attention firmly fixed on the horizontal realm. Mm -hmm. But certain people aren't satisfied with that and they find their attention going to the vertical. Now what form that takes can be very different because sometimes you see this with musicians, artists. Artists tend to go into that world um, and uh, you know, profound uh, uh, spiritual practitioners go into the vertical. And so for me, I guess I see a, it starts with an abiding interest in the vertical, and which means that everything can be the same in front of me. And yet there's a quality of presence and there's a quality of something that can shift in this moment with everything in my sensory realm being the same, more or less just as you described with your experience, where suddenly things become sharper, suddenly the, the, the quality of the detail, the attention I have, the, the subtlety of the uh, emotional sensitivity shifts. And there's, there's, I'm going within the moment. <laughs> I'm not going, you know, and, and, and that, that, see, that feels to me part of this question too, that, that um, so I can say I have an intention to, uh, uh, go towards the vertical, but it's, it's really more uh, of a kind of almost like an innate craving or an innate interest to move in that direction. Yes, beautifully said. I, I, I mean, it's an interesting motivation or impulse or longing that you cannot possess in the way that you possess other intentions. I think it's it feels like it's coming from beyond you and calling you to go beyond you or beyond oneself. Well, earlier, but earlier in the conversation, you were you were saying that it that if you find that in your in your um, in the transcendent moments you were describing, um, it's like it was there all along, and you just discovered that it was there. And so, and so that's a different kind of intention than creating, well, I'm going to go to the store and yeah. get, get toilet paper in the pandemic. <laughs> yes. Right. So, um, it, and, and, and I'm not even sure that intention is the right word for it because intention has this, uh, this self-willed kind of quality. Whereas I think you're pointing to something that is I mean, I like long, bigger than that. Longing comes up, but I, I have trouble. I mean, there's a whole modality and expression about longing for God. And uh, I understand that. I, I don't like that as much because longing has its own kind of uh, uh, built-in kind of sense of separation. And because there's still this sense of distance. Whereas uh, 
as a kid, you know, if I was naturally curious, you know, my mind would go, you know, and my attention would go in certain directions. And so, uh, I find a, just, a a curiosity, an innocent curiosity almost as, uh, a, feels more central to me, but it's a curiosity in a, in a very particular direction. And I happen to notice that, you know, you know, I work in the world in a corporate environment and, uh, very few people share that that particular curiosity. Uh, well, I, I run a spiritual bookstore, and even the people who come into that store are not necessarily yeah. sharing that. But does that? But do you get sense what I mean? I mean, I guess I'm trying. I'm trying to speak to kind of like an innocence, uh, you know, the, uh, and and you know, our teacher uh, uh, would talk. You know, in the fourth way, there's a there's a term essence, which is um, you know, there's personality and there's essence. So essence is you know, thought to be a a self, you know, it's a, a, a truer self that's uh, uh, in this uh, organism. And I won't go into the details about that, but, you know, children have the quality of essence and that essence, you know, sort of slowly gets hemmed in by the formation of the personality. But with children, they don't have the experience of life to kind of form the uh, resilience of wisdom that's necessary to stay there without being crushed by the uh, the shocks of the world. But if we reclaim that essence, then we're innocent, we're in essence. And in that innocence, there seems to, for me, there seems to be a very natural draw into the, what we would call the vertical. I think we are struggling to find words or ways of expressing yeah. something which is which I think we the three of us feel is very important, powerful, has a big effect on, on our lives and on on the way we, we see uh, what we are here for. So there is an undeniable impulse or you know, we use words like curiosity and innocence and craving and longing to describe uh, a force or, or an attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, it's very, we don't want to, we can't um, possess it. We can't, mm-hmm. uh, and also because it's pointing at something that we don't know, that we can't even imagine. It's somehow wanting something that you cannot uh, give words to or imagine. So what it's wanting something, wanting it more than anything else, I can say for myself, and not being able to say what it is. That's quite a situation to be in. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, but that's why we use words like the mystery. And in fact, you know, a, a friend of ours is a, a Tibetan teacher, uh, uh, very explicitly talks about, you know, uh, the mystical in this, in this context. That, that's how he, that's how he would describe the mystical. Of course, we can't explain it. That's why it's a mystery. <laughs> Because it, it, it defies that. It, its very nature is uh, uh, that, you know, our words can will come close to it and bounce off at high velocity because they're, not, they're insufficient to uh, uh, contain or to capture the vitality of th- that reality. And yet we try because uh, 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 it's fun. It's fun to talk about it. 
I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't have any profound uh, uh, sense that uh, we're going to fence it off and suddenly be able to study it like a butterfly with a pin through it. Um, I, want, I want to add something more to that, uh, to the mystery of it all, which is that um, in different traditions, I found that they say that it's possible through one's intention or willpower and uh, practice or spiritual work to reach very rarefied and uh, levels of consciousness, very uh, great sensitivity and insights and wisdom and, and um, have very, un very unusual experiences, mystical experiences, but beyond that, there is another level, which, you know, let's call it living transcendence, which you cannot reach by willpower or by practice or by any effort of yours and only by grace. And, uh, and that's, and so to me, that's, that, there's a paradox there because that's where, that's where I'm, that's what I'm longing for. That's where my intention or attention is pulling me toward. And I know it's not in my hands. It's not, I cannot want it because it's not part of the wants of the, uh, of the individual or the personality or, you know, it's beyond all that. So how can one even talk about it? I don't know. A, well, the, uh, the thing that comes up for me is, is that we need both effort and relaxation, like breathing. Yeah. And um, um, I don't know about you, but, but goodness knows I've done a lot of efforting in my life, imagining that I was going to get things yeah. as a result of that. And so, and maybe, maybe the um, experience of growing older has helped a little bit, at least, mm -hmm. in um, relaxing mm -hmm. and 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 finding what that has to offer. But um, but that's just another stab at uh, this uh, this difficult uh, and fun issue. Well, yeah, there's a I'll, I'll use a scientific metaphor since uh, uh, I like scientific metaphors and. Uh, that's that uh, there are deterministic processes and there's stochastic processes. A stochastic process is a probabilistic process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, rolling the dice is a stochastic process. So there's lots of processes in nature that are, uh, you can't predict at any given time, but you can say that the probability for something happening is uh, uh, greater or lesser depending on certain conditions. And so, you know, I, I guess I look at grace as a stochastic process, and I look at uh, efforts as a deterministic process, and I certainly believe that there's a cause and effect of one can 
organize one's consciousness and do all sorts of amazing things, uh, whether it's to develop CDs or to, to learn to play the violin. There's lots of different things we can do. Whether one does it or not is, I think, more of a sense of taste rather than uh, necessity. Uh, and there's this stochastic uh, uh, aspect. And our teacher used to say that, you, you know, you can never, you know, guarantee that lightning is going to strike. But if you climb up on a mountain and hold a, a iron rod in the sky during a lightning storm, the chances are it's going to much more likely that it's going to strike. And so the relationship between effort and this sort of grace is that if you don't apply the effort, um, then the quality of the, the grace uh, is going to manifest differently than if you have conditioned the quality of well, the grace. Uh, uh, let's say the probability of the, the grace. Okay. I, okay. Uh, and I have a, actually a specific example of this. Uh, we we had, we're, were talking to a fairly well-known uh, Advaita Vedanta teacher, a Western teacher on our show uh, a few weeks ago and or a couple of months ago at this point. And he, I was sort of getting into this uh, maybe slightly contentious uh, in a gentle way, but uh, uh, because he was of the mode of, of uh, that uh, it's really easy, you know, it's like the direct path to take your awareness back to that which is aware without, you know, you know, prior to any anything, you know, it's like we can all do this. We anyone anyone can take their attention back there and, and really start to develop a a movement back to awareness prior to subject and object it, it's a, um, and and he and he would act like that was like you know that that would be like the gateway to peace for people but he also uh had tantric training where there's a fairly elaborate you know dedicated practice to bring that insight that one finds in that moment into life and for me, the frustration I had is like uh, it's that second part that's like ninety percent, ninety nine percent of the work, and that other, the first part is kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like peak experiences that uh, you know they're they're great, they're helpful, they provide seeds that can can flourish, but the act of planting the seed and cultivating the soil and fertilizing it and providing the right nutrients and all that is the work of a lifetime. Right, yes. Yeah. So that, so again, you know, that too, uh, I guess I feel like the, it's the, the work, the effort, you know, the, of, of integrating that kind of understanding into life makes available or makes more possible you know, a lightning strike. And at the same time, I don't know that one does it with the intent of having the lightning strike. Well, I, mean, I, I love the metaphor because, because, um, because combined effort that one has to make in order to climb to the mountaintop with the vulnerability of mm -hmm. folding up the... Uh, what do you call it? The lightning rod? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but that's, 
but to me that's where my 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 relaxation comes in because you can't just stick it up in the cloud and it's going to work you have to yeah. wait and you have to you know it's like okay i'm waiting i'm waiting i'm waiting <laughs> that kind of thing well and the other thing about about that position of waiting with a lightning rod is that um Aside from the fact that there's not much you can do about it, about, you know, get being struck, mm -hmm. uh, you also don't know what it would feel like. Mm -hmm. It also wouldn't feel like anything you're familiar with. Right. Right. That's true. I mean, I, I've, presumably. I've seen traditions uh, 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 where people are much more into uh, pyrotechnics or, you know, uh, you know, intense energy flows and things like that. Uh, we interviewed uh, a number of students of the uh, teacher Rudy. I don't know if you, you ever hear. Yeah. So, and there's a number Swami of Swami Rudrananda for yeah, our listeners. Yeah. Swami Rudrananda. And uh, uh, we talked to a number of people who had been students of his and, and uh, he, he would just induce these uh, Kundalini experiences uh, in people, uh, our, you know, senior students uh, quite regularly. And, I don't know, you know, that, that that's interesting, and I think it's it's in the realm of what's possible in this organism. But I don't know that it's uh, necessary, in a sense, to attain to a deep and abiding peace that's born of a uh, relationship and orientation along this vertical direction that we're talking about. Yes. I mean, I personally am I'm, I'm completely insensitive to this kind of uh, energy. <laughs> so, I, don't, I, me I mean, I me too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we all. I mean, I'm I, I'm drawn to it, you know, and I'm drawn to uh, uh, like Western magical tradition. Uh, but I look at it more like work. You know, it's like it's like it's, it's practice, it's work, uh, and just like Tibetan tantric practices, you can put a lot of energy in, but it doesn't feel like it's like central to what my teacher imparted to me. Yeah, you know, that that was something different that exists outside of the realm of this life. That it it it, it exists in a different category, a, a a knowing of sorts that is. I don't know how I, I try to put words to it, except that it's it's a it's a knowing that enables me to have a sense of humor in my life uh, that, you know, that, that the, the details of what's happening and even the details of psychic states I may find myself in that are uh, particularly dense are ultimately transitory things that, um, you know, I'm here to work with. So um, if you agree, I think this is a good opening for another chapter in our conversation, which is about trying to make distinctions between different types of spirituality. I'm totally open to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's try to do it together because I don't have a, I don't have a structure, you know. That yeah. I'm... Well, I, I will, I will warn you, we have probably about uh, 20 minutes left. Okay. So okay. we, but, but that, but we can, we can start this and then we certainly can, uh, 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 talk again to carry this theme forward. Great, great. Well, 
I mean, spirituality is like a, a big field. It's like, you know, like 2,000 years ago, science was a general word that included everything from physics to biology to geology to, you know, natural history and, and, and everything was included. And then it started to, you know, over the millennium, it started to be divided into more specific areas of expertise, like physics and biology and chemistry and then organic chemistry, etc., etc. So to me, spirituality is like a big smorgasbord of everything that is non-scientific or alternative from asking the big questions of life, self-knowledge, to magical thinking, uh, tarot reading, and conspiracy thinking. <laughs> so it's like everything is included under, under this huge umbrella. And I think it, I, I, I'm trying, I, I'd like to, <laughs> Uh, start making some distinctions, and, and uh, for me, this is a very important and, and interesting conversation of how do we, what kinds of spirituality do we see? And also, I think the other thing about it is that everybody seems to, come because it's a very loaded word, spiritual or spirituality, like love or God, so everybody is like fighting over who, who is going to own that word, you know? This is the real spirituality. No, this is not real spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think if we kind of divide it into sub-fields, it would uh, ease the tension around that word. Yeah. Uh, you, no, no, go ahead. I just want one category or distinction that jumped up as you were saying that is that I find the term we were using earlier of the mystical, the mystical project seems distinct from um, the project of a tarot card reader or a, the project of a, uh, even a project of a shaman to some extent because often shamanic work is transactional in the uh, kind of the in-between realm of the human realm and the energetic realm that sort of is the kind of the next layer beyond the manifest. Yeah. And then uh, magical practices can be very transactional uh, just at different dimensions of uh, the sort of the physics of manifestation and magical practices can uh, turn towards the mystical, you know, particularly when they're when they're not so concerned with effect, but they're more concerned with uh, creating containers in which effect is sort of uh, pushed to the side. So the mystical seems to me to be a, uh, a distinguishes intent because it's like with the mystical, you're jumping in or you're willing to go into free fall. Uh, without uh, a parachute and without a bottom and without and and that's like a giving up of a kind of a control so, so, so that that seems different to me than many of the other things that might be covered under this umbrella of spiritual hmm. so you, you're, 
So this is an interesting way of making a distinction is between um, remaining in control and, and, and creating structures or powers, working on powers, um, versus letting go or surrendering. Yeah, or surrendering. That's probably the key word is surrendering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that, I didn't quite think of it that way, but the way you're carrying it is, yeah, it takes it to another level. What do you think? Do you like the distinction or not? You seem... Well, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm not quite clear on if there's a, a polar opposite to the mystical. What would that be if there's a polar op opposite to the mystical? <laughs> the non-mystical. <laughs> Thanks. And, 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 point, and point me in that direction, please. <laughs> I think I just did. <laughs> Don't think you did at all. Uh, so, well, I mean, but uh, so maybe uh, let's not talk about polar opposite, but uh, uh, the term, I like the term that uh, you brought up of like the surrendering, this quality of surrendering um, is a, a different program than uh, the program of making sense of it all. Well, what do we mean by surrendering? I mean, I, I'll, I'll give it a try. Me, surrendering and longing or searching for the sacred, for the sacred, are, are related. So it means that there is, there is a longing or a pull or a, a movement toward uh, that which is beyond myself or greater mm -hmm. than, than myself and um, and there is a willingness to go in that in the direction of that pool to follow that impulse uh, not only without knowing where it's going with in a way you could use the metaphor of uh, of having one of walking with one's eyes closed um, but also, and also renouncing or letting go of props and uh, and powers and and concepts in in order to be able to follow that which is beyond you know concepts and powers and 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 anything that can anything that we can manipulate. So basically, wanting something else to lead the way for us, something else than our I can say ego, but that that kind of doesn't say much. Um, it's it's very mysterious. <laughs> We're back to that word. We're back to that word. Well, the, the um, I like I like what you were just saying about about surrender and 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 the other thing that's important about it, it seems to me, is if we're surrendering in the realm we're talking about, then we are surrendering projections about what's good, what's God, what's supposed to happen, um, et cetera. And, and that to me is really key because we, our minds, our emotions, our bodies project 
um, strongly, a lot, frequently. And um, it's only when we surrender that activity that we, that we could possibly be open to the grace that you were talking about earlier, it seems to me. Yeah. And, so the, and so the spiritual practice, spiritual practice is, is about surrendering the habit of projection. I mean, that's one way you can, you can formulate it. Yeah. Which is another way of saying letting oneself be pulled and directed by something that one cannot see and cannot conceptualize and cannot formulate and letting that pull and its guidance uh, show you the way mm. without, without, without seeing the way, in a way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, my, my teacher used to say, uh, so one, one thing to uh, try to learn to do is to speak without thinking about what you're going to say before or even as you're speaking. Just letting the words come out. Mm. That that's a kind of surrender because who knows what the hell you're gonna say. <laughs> yeah. We have powerful, powerful intentions about not uh, saying things that we think would get us into trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> or at least I I do. I have had those. Practice. Practice. Our, our teacher also imparted to me a idea that was pretty foundational for me in terms of my uh, practice early on, and that was the idea that if you have, oh, we'll say the intention, you know, if you, if you have, he, the way he would frame it is if you have the intention to awaken uh, and you put that out to the universe, the universe necessarily has to organize itself to create circumstances that give you the experiences uh, necessary to facilitate that process. Now, a lot of those experiences are not very pleasant. They don't. Yeah, the experiences don't have to be pleasant. And and, then, really, and when they're unpleasant, you have to be willing to maintain the commitment. Right. But but that's but by, by living living that really deepening that relationship to that that claim whether we believe it's true in an ontological sense or whether we just use it as an operational uh, technique, it, it means that you say yes to everything. Whatever happens in life, you say yes. Uh, what, what experiences present themselves, you embrace. You surrender to them. You accept them. You relax within them. And to the extent that that as a that as a practice for me is almost like sufficient because nothing else matters after that. You know, if I'm not relaxed, I have something to work on. If I am relaxed, what is happening is the conversation that my life is with the divine. Mm. Um, that's different from my experience uh, in the in the spiritual journey. Um, because I've been I've been through a few crises and in in which I was very far from feeling relaxed. I felt mm -hmm. like I was going crazy. Yeah. And uh, suffered 
suffered so much that I was seriously considering either going crazy or committing suicide because it was unbearable. Mm -hmm. The fact that something carried me through those times of crisis and showed and and led me to the other side of that Mm -hmm. was revealed to me only in retrospect. So the fact that I trusted something invisible that was showing me the way through that storm was not something that I could see while I was in the storm. When I was in the storm, I didn't know what was forward and what was backward, what was up or what was down. It was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had no idea of where, what was happening around me, except that I was, uh, I lost touch with a familiar ground or with, with whatever uh, enabled me to get as far as I, as I got at that point. That was no more of use for me. And I didn't, I didn't know what was ahead. I had no idea how, how, how I could go forward if, if there was any forward even. So that was very far from relax, relaxing. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 should, I just want to point out that I had, uh, even prior to meeting my teacher, experiences that were much more into that that character. So I'm not I'm not saying that what I'm describing here is easy or always presents itself or anything like that. Uh, what I'm describing is something that ultimately deepened, just like holding that question. You know, it, it, that that idea that that what was happening to me in this moment was a necessary ingredient in response to, you know, it's like I trusted the universe. I was given to trust the universe. And if I could trust the universe and trust what was happening, that that would pull me through. Right. Right. But did you always know that you were trusting or did you just discover it uh, in retrospect? Um, I, I'm, I'm as much a bozo on the bus as uh, any of the rest of us in the sense that uh, uh, there were times where I might have clarity and there's times where I was completely oblivious yeah. and uh, uh, would only... I, well, I, I'll just jump in here and say, you know, one thing that helped me was the uh, advice to act as if. So I could act as if I trusted my teacher, even though I was completely ready to run uh, 180 degrees away from his direction. Right. So, so, so that was really important to get me through the extraordinarily painful stuff that came up along the way. I don't know if that resonates for you. Well, yes, it does. I mean, what you're what you're saying is that there was uh, a commitment, or not, it's not a commitment. It's it's a willingness to uh, lean into or put your weight on trust, even if everything in your emotional and concept or or uh, um, conceptual experience said no, no, no. Right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That, that 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 rings true. I mean, that I like that I, that way of uh, 
So this 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 is um, so it means that there is something in us that is um, that knows or is willing to commit beyond what we think and how we feel in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly the implication of what we've just been discussing. Right. So in that sense, I think we can say we can call this trust resting in something. So we can rest in something or trust in something, even if our uh, cognitive and affective experience is completely not restful. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, that was my experience, actually, is that that's the one thing that was that I held on to mm. at those moments of extraordinary uh, uh, despair and pain, uh, etc. Right. So, um, and that was, and, and the remarkable thing is that's more than I felt like I had had before. What do you mean? I mean that in my life before I met my teacher, which was just mostly living living an ordinary life as best I could, um, I didn't have I didn't have a foundation, or at least as soon as I started doing self inquiry, I realized that oh. Everything, every time I looked for a foundation in, within myself, that it would evaporate. Yes. So acting as if I had something like that, this commitment, um, in a sense, created it, created a foundation that I could rely on. Yes. But I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I was just holding on for dear life. Well, I, I, I can completely relate. I think that after you go through a few such experiences, you realize that something is carrying you through or, or, or that you have something to trust even when you don't see what it is. Mm. Even without having any idea of what, what you're trusting at. There is something operating in you that that you can trust and 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 after going through a few such crises um it gives you a lot of confidence in that, it does. In that you cannot see yeah it does and it is a marvelous mystery it is a, yeah. a beneficent mystery mm -hmm. it's beautiful yeah we're back to the uh, uh word of mystery and we're almost out of time yeah, we never got around to the conspiracy. Yeah, we didn't get around to the conspiracy, and just as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I uh, appreciated what you had written in Facebook about conspirituality, but um, uh, uh, it's not the most interesting topic we could talk about. <laughs> in a way, I'm relieved, I have to say. Yeah, because it, it's a, I mean, there's enough crazy people out there, so... Uh, I'm, I'm, these are these are more interesting questions. Mm, yes, thank you. I, I really feel like, I mean, this this kind of conversation is the most important conversation in my life, and I really I'm I'm very grateful for having the opportunity to uh, 
share it with you, speak with you. Oh, we're uh, we're so glad yeah. that uh, um, I, I can speak for myself. I'm so glad that uh, we've had this chance, and I really do look forward to more such conversations. Yeah. I mean, you're 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 clearly. I mean, I, one thing I appreciate is that uh, uh, you've gone out and interviewed a bunch of teachers and students, just like we've been doing, and that in itself uh, creates an interesting perspective because. Uh, uh, it's like you you have to dip into all of these different ways of looking at this problem. Well, I, I, I do, but I think that um, if I want to stay with what's most real and relevant to my spiritual search, then dropping any specific language and terminology and conceptual framework is a good way of staying yeah. with what's most real. With, Whatever stays after you let go of all your concepts, that's that's what you can trust. <laughs> I'll go with that for now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a perfect a perfect way to end the conversation. So, Amir Freiman, thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positive. It's been great. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Amir Freiman author of Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path. We discussed the nature of the spiritual path, living in transcendence in contrast to experiencing transcendence in peak moments, and the yearning for the mystical. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.